Open your Bibles to Romans 13, as we come back to our study of a powerfully relevant book for us in our times. We live in a society that's so conscious of time, we have it strapped to our wrist or to our belt, in our pockets, on so many different devices, and if we don't have it there, we have it around us all the time on TV screens and ticker signs and bank signs are, are all over the place. We are supremely interested in knowing what time of day it is. But it's a shame that far too, pu- uh, far too few people understand the spiritual times. Understanding what Paul is calling for us to understand in Romans 13. He's talking in verses 11 through 14 about knowing the times. This is what he says there. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is a section about living with an awareness of the times, of calling us to what was uh, said of the sons of Issachar back in the book of Chronicles, that they were men who understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. This is a call for you and I to understand the spiritual times, or we might say the spiritual climate of what is around us. Paul's not calling for chronological time. He lived in a day when that was not a major area of concern. They didn't have all the devices that we have today. They, they, they rose with the sun and went to bed with the sun down. But, but he's talking not about chronological time. He's talking about epochs or eras. He's talking about the era of darkness and the era of light or more briefly, what he just simply calls here the day and the night. And Paul is saying, look, I want you to understand. You need to know that you are in an environment where there is, whether you realize it or not, encroaching all around you a kind of darkness, a kind of blindness, a kind of deception, A kind of way of thinking that is drawing people down into despair, destruction, guilt, and shame. Now there's a lot of background to what Paul is saying here. A lot of imagery associated with these words. Even the word day is used, as you may know, throughout the scripture to talk about uh, particularly the day of the Lord, the day in which Christ will come back, the day when He will enact His judgment on the world and, and against unbelief, a setting right of all of the wrongs, a bringing to justice all that is unjust, a bringing righteousness to the earth. And in that framework of the end times, darkness is also used, sometimes of judgment that is associated with the day, but it's also used in other places 
not to talk about God's judgment, but to talk about man's behavior, to talk about those things which people try to hide, which they they run away from accountability, they run away from the spotlight, they they hide away to do things for which they are ashamed. This is the way Paul's using it here. He's using darkness as a reference to this era of sin, this pervasive sinfulness of the times in which we live. And he was just talking about this, I should say if he was just talking about this simply in his own era, if he was just talking about the Roman Empire, the Roman era, it would be one thing. He would be saying that he lives in a particularly sinful empire with a particularly wicked ruler and and abusive leaders, all of those things. But he really isn't talking about just his own era of history. He's talking about the entire history of the world from the fall of Adam and Eve to his day all the way down to our day. It is the era of darkness. In fact, we read about this in other places of Scripture. Ephesians 6.12, Paul refers to this present darkness over which the rulers in heavenly places are reigning and ruling. Or he says in Colossians 1.13 that, that we are delivered from a domain of darkness. We live in a world full of darkness. You might, you might not think that. You might think to yourself, it's not so dark. I mean, we are civilized. We made advancements. We have, you see what we have in terms of, of health care. We see what we have in terms of education. You see what we have in technology, even in, in uh, the rights, uh, civil rights, all these things. You see all these advancements we've made. We're not a dark society. Well, I mean, you might point to those things, but I would ask, what are people doing with them? What are people doing with all of their technology and their education and their advancement, we seem to find more and more ways, even with all of the advancements we have, to be just as hateful, just as evil, just as dark, just as selfish as we've ever been. There's a darkness. And it's compounded, by the way, by the fact that not only is it around us in the systems and the society, but it is compounded by the fact that the Scripture says it abides in the heart of every unbeliever. There's a blindness, a darkness in their hearts. Ephesians 4, Paul says, I testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as unbelievers do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them and because of the hardness of their heart. Paul says this is a condition of the unbelieving world. They have a sort of callousness toward the things of God. They have a hardness that's developed over their hearts toward the things of God. And it leads them, he says, to a futile pathway, a futile walk. It's futile because it's always chasing after satisfaction. It's always chasing after comfort. It's always chasing after dreams. But it's always chasing after promises which never deliver. It's futility. A plant that's always watered but never seems to yield its fruit. Mankind may give the appearance of being sophisticated, of being 
comprehensive in his thinking. All of his wisdom and sophistication, though, always fail to deliver the ultimate goals of peace and joy and happiness. He lives in the deception of his own perception. This is the mind that's common to man. It's darkened, it's hardened, it's ignorant, and it's futile. Jesus even gave a warning about this. You may remember in Luke 34 when he he used the analogy of the eye. He says, the eye is a lamp to your body. And when your eye is good, when it's healthy, your whole body is full of light. In other words, when you have a good eye, when you have a healthy eye, it can process all of the, 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 the spectrum of lights that enter into it. It can, res- it can respond. It's not as if your, your entire physical being is literally filled with light, but your eye communicates its sensory data to the brain. The data can process that and can help uh, uh, use that for all the parts of the body, all the impulses that are sent to direct all of the senses so that it takes in the light and responds in a proper way, in a healthy way, in a way that makes the body productive. But Jesus says when your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, he says, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. He's saying there's some people who go through life thinking that they see, thinking that they have light, but they are blinded. Their eye is bad. Their eye is unhealthy. And everything that they're taking in that they thought was light is really darkness and is sending false signals, the wrong signals, to all of the sensory organs of their brain so that they're stumbling and falling and, and hurting themselves over and over again. And you, you plead with them, why? Why do you do this? Why do you continue to hurt yourself in these ways? Why do you follow after this darkness? And the person can only respond, because I think it's light. Jesus says, be careful. If for all of, your, all of your worldly wisdom, all of your learning, all of your sophistication, everything that you claim to have, which is the wisdom of the world, be careful, lest all of that stuff that you're claiming is light is really darkness. It's really darkness. This is the condition of every human being apart from Christ. They live in a darkened world And they are blinded by darkness in their own heart. The good news, though, is that you can be delivered from this. Colossians says, God delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We are delivered out of this state of ignorance. We're delivered out of this state of spiritual darkness. We're delivered out of this state of blindness. We're brought into a place where our eyes are open, where our heart is filled with truth, where wisdom, true wisdom floods in and begins to grant us the kind of light so that we can see all that has destroyed our lives. We can begin to see the wisdom of God, how that can be brought back to a place of healing. We begin to understand what it was in the ignorance that we once walked in. We repent of that stuff and begin to follow after God. 
Now, all of that is the framework from which Paul draws here in Romans 13 when he's talking to you and I about darkness and about light, about the daytime and about night. And what he's really doing is he's kind of mixing, if you will, some of this language, some of this metaphor of the day of the Lord and of the darkness that surrounds us. And he puts it all together to give us this exhortation not to be people of the night. And really, this is just an extension of what Paul already told us back in chapter 12, verse 1, that you and I are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Don't be conformed to the darkness around you. Don't align yourself to its ways of thinking and its value and its system. Don't be conformed to its blindness and its hardness, its callousness. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. You might ask, well, why in the world would anyone do that? Why would any Christian do that? Why would anyone give in and let themselves be conformed to what they have already been told is a darkened and a futile way of life? Well, I could just give you some suggestions. Some of it is perhaps just impatience, anxiety, a feeling of helplessness or hopelessness, a feeling of defeat, a sense of resignation that the darkness will never end. That, that what you see going on around you is just the way that it is. That you can, you can have all this language and you can have all this talk about spiritual truth and, and love and joy and good feelings, but when you get out into the real world, the way the real world works, it operates by these methods of darkness. And so there becomes sometimes a temptation in the heart of someone who embraces Christ to just be resigned to the fact that they live in a dark world and they need to operate by its processes. They they grow impatient, longing for the day, longing for the light. And so they give in to the ways of the world just to make their way in the world. And Paul's purpose, his whole purpose for the plea that he gives to us here is to get you not to give in to that way of thinking. You can hear the urgency in his words almost pleading. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake. For salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. For the night is far gone, the day is at hand. And he's pleading with you and he's pleading with me, do not give in and do not give up in the sense of of caving to the world around you. Don't be conformed just in order to make it along. Don't give in to the futility, to the blindness, to the destructiveness of all that's around you. Now we can really unpack, I think, what Paul is saying in these verses, I think with four, you might say, distinct aspects of his plea, or maybe four pleas that he gives us for a Christian to live in light of the times. Four ways that we ought to live in the present age, in this present darkness. Four ways to live in light of the time. And the first one in verse 11 is simply, stay aware. To stay aware. 
And he says this in verse 11, besides this, besides what he already said in verses 8 through 10, which is the fact that that the supreme mandate by which we do everything is to love, to love one another, he says, is the fulfillment of the law. So besides understanding that in general, besides this, he says, you know the time. You have no excuse for being ignorant. In fact, Paul uses a number of statements here about time. He talks about the hour that has come. He talks about salvation being nearer now than when we first believed. He talks about the night being far gone, the day is at hand. All of those are references not only to the spiritual condition of our present age, but the fact that there is a day coming, a day of salvation that's coming. In fact, he says your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Paul understands the weariness. He knows the discouragement. He knows the grief whenever you look around you and you see the effects of brokenness and fallenness. He understands that. And he turned his heart and mind to the future. To a day of salvation, he says, it's coming. A day that's at hand. You know, we speak about salvation as something past and something that has been accomplished. We speak about being saved, and in fact, Paul does too. He occasionally speaks about salvation in the past tense, for by grace you have been saved, he says in Ephesians, or he talks about in Titus 3, 5, that we were saved from our sins. But most of the time when Paul is speaking of salvation, he's speaking of it in a future sense. And particularly in the book of Romans, this is the way Paul has spoken of salvation again and again. Romans 5, 9, you may remember, he says, Those who have been justified through the blood of Christ shall be saved from the wrath of God. Or in the next verse, he says, If we have been reconciled to God, we will be saved by His life. Romans 2.3 talks about the impossibility of escaping judgment on the last day if you do not have faith. Or even in Romans 10, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Paul's certainly not promising you that if you're a Christian, you'll never face humiliation in this life. But what he's saying is, at the return of Christ, you will not face humiliation in that day. In fact, I think sometimes we do a disservice by putting so much emphasis on salvation as a past event and not bringing the New Testament focus of the what you might call eschatological, the end-time salvation that is the focus of the Scripture. Peter says, having this hope, excuse me, John says, having this hope fixed on Him, we purify ourselves just as He is pure. That is having your understanding of this future salvation fixed where it ought to be in the future. It has a kind of a purifying effect in our lives that's lost when everything is relegated to the past. Paul says, look, salvation still awaits you. You look around, you're disappointed with the way that things are working out. You might even feel a sense of humiliation over some circumstances. You might feel a sense of disappointment over uh, what's going on in your life. And you might begin to imagine that somehow you have been cheated. You have been left out of God's goodness. And Paul tells you, no, salvation is coming. It's a day that is at hand. 
In fact, over in Romans 8, if you look over there in verse 24, you may remember Paul speaking about the groaning. Uh, he, He mentions the groaning that we are under, even the groaning that creation is under because of the bondage to corruption. He understands all of these things. He says in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. For we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And in this hope you were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul uses a salvation there in the past tense. But he says, look, this isn't the full picture. You don't fully see your salvation. You don't see it fully manifest. There's something yet that you're still waiting for. You're waiting for it eagerly because it isn't here yet. In fact, you might, you might say technically justification is a past event. That moment when you believe in Jesus Christ and He declares you to be righteous in spite of all of your sin, in spite of all your failures, He credits you with a righteousness that is not your own, a righteousness that comes to you by faith in Jesus Christ. That certainly is a, an all-at-once event that takes place when you believe. That is past. But salvation itself That is the deliverance from all the remaining uh, shackles and, and difficulties and struggle with sin. That salvation is yet something that is ahead of us. That is still something we eagerly wait for. And Paul here, speaking about the times, says we need to understand this. You need to know this. You need to know that when you look around and see all around you, you're not supposed to see that completed picture. You're not supposed to see your best life now. You're supposed to see it in the future. Something that is eagerly anticipated. In fact, all that you see around you, all the way the world operates, all of the sin and the wickedness and the strife and the immorality, the grief... This is not the way it will always be. Those are not the forces that are going to win in the end. I love the title of a little book that sits on my shelf. I've only thumbed through it a little bit, but it's called A Breviary on Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And so the idea here is don't give up. Don't give in to those forces. Don't begin to think that the night will never end. Don't just give in to it. Don't let your spiritual senses senses become deadened. Don't become lethargic as the night wears on. Don't let your eyes grow heavy. Don't let your mind become drowsy. Which brings us really to Paul's second point and his second plea. Not only that we discern that we're aware of the times. He not only says to be aware or stay aware, but he also says to stay awake. Verse 12. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. This is a call to this kind of spiritual alertness. Or we might say a warning about growing spiritually insensitive. Spiritually unaware of what's going on. 
That's the definition of a sleeping person, right? They're unaware of their surroundings. That's why thieves do their work generally in the night. Because people are less aware of what's going on. When people are asleep, they aren't aware of their surroundings. And the idea is you have to wake up. Be mindful of what's taking place around you spiritually. Don't be so foolish as to deny all of the brokenness and all of the corruption and all of the despair and all of the sin that surrounds you every day. You cannot look at the actions and the activities that surround us without evaluating them spiritually. You can't see all the sin and all the dysfunction and all the disorder and all the decay of the lives and just assume that that stuff is all chance. You can't see the brokenness of society and the brokenness of relationships and just assume that stuff is all random or temporary, passing phase, troubled times. No, it's spiritually manifested. It's spiritually generated. And we have to evaluate things according to the light. You have to see them as if you saw them in the light of day. You have to build up your spiritual sensitivity so that you can understand not only how terribly destructive the forces are that are all around you, but you understand where it really comes from. You have a whole world that wants to assign all of that stuff to biological forces or circumstantial forces who want to run away from the obvious evidences of what's going on in their own hearts. Paul's warning us, you can't let that happen. can't let ourselves be lulled into the sleep by all the darkness that surrounds you. You can't let yourself be so overwhelmed and think that just because things are so dark, you should just give in and do what people do in the darkness. Begin to think that the day will never arrive. Paul has a very similar appeal to the Thessalonian believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 He says, you are not in darkness, brothers, that the day would surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, and we're not of the night or of the darkness. And so, therefore, do not let us sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And since we belong to the day, let us remain sober. He's just saying that this is the normal kind of activity when people just think that it's, it's dark outside. The general pattern is that they go to sleep, that they, they lose their, their readiness, they lose their awakeness. And Paul's saying along with that, people participate in all kinds of deeds that are done in the darkness, drunkenness, other kinds of things. Not that that's the only time people drink, but that is typical, he says. So, so we can't let our senses be numb. We can't adopt the ways of the world. We can't be conformed to the world. Which brings us to Paul's third appeal, which is simply to stay away from these deeds. Stay away from them. He says, let us cast off the works of darkness. 
The same kind of appeal that he gave in the, the, the epistle to the Thessalonians. Don't give in to the darkness. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to its attitudes and its actions. Don't adopt its ways. And he gives us a list of what he's talking about there in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And it's clear as he moves through this, he's moving from those really, we might say, extreme examples of what takes place uh, in the night to what is maybe less extreme, but all the still, uh, still, uh, still the same, it's associated with this world. Whether it is orgies and drunkenness or whether it is something as somewhat acceptable as quarreling and jealousy. Paul says we're not to associate with any of that stuff. That's the stuff of the nighttime. That's the stuff of darkness. Paul gives his list here. Orgies, by the way, is just a word for wild parties. It really has no particularly association with sexual activity, although that was often associated with the sort of festivals and parties that Paul has in, in his own day. But he's just picturing those places and those events where you are encouraged through throw-off restraints to behave in ways that would be, we might say, socially unacceptable environments where you're encouraged to do that or he links it with even drunkenness which obviously is intoxication or we might even say impairment of your senses from any kind of substance it's the epitome of the dulling of your senses and the deadening of your conscience this is why in the old testament kings and priests were strictly told not to drink any wine because of the seriousness of their duties they were never to have an ounce of impairment in what they did. Or Paul adds to the list here sexual immorality, which is basically a word for all kinds of of illicit sexual activity. Sex, we might say, outside of God-given and God-blessed institutions, the, the institution of marriage. He says you're to be Awake and aware of the deception and the deceptive ways that the world would present this, the dark ways that it would present this kind of thing. It promotes the idea of sexual exploration, of sexual freedom, while denying all the while that the so-called sexual freedom shackles society with so much of a burden Burdens of single parenthood, burdens of kids being brought up in financial distress, in disease, in guilt, even for the parents and shame. I was listening this, morning, this week to a, a news article on the radio about the president of Tanzania saying he was going to ban pregnant young girls from coming to school because he felt like they were going to be a distraction in the class and people were just coming down hard on the president and I understand it was a harsh move on his part but someone wrote into the program while it was on the air and they read it 
And the guy just simply said, has anyone ever thought about telling the young boys and girls in Tanzania not to be sexually active in light of their educational goals? And if you thought the king of, I mean, the president of Tanzania was a bad guy, they railed against any suggestion that the solution to this social problem might actually be sexual abstinence. The world doesn't want to embrace the pain and the destructiveness of sexual immorality. It doesn't want to face what is happening all around it. It wants its freedoms without its consequences. And Paul says you can't be blind. You can't be unaware. You can't adopt the world's ways of thinking. You, you have the light. You know the destruction of this kind of sin. And then he adds to it other works of darkness, quarreling, which MacArthur defines as persistent contention, bickering, petty disagreement, enmity. He said it reflects a spirit of antagonistic competitiveness that fights to have its own way regardless of the cost to itself or the harm of others. And then he adds finally jealousy which is just a deep desire to prevail over others to gain prestige, prominence, recognition, position for yourself. Kind of selfish ambition. And that's just a sample list. I mean, Paul's not trying to be exhaustive. I mean, you could turn over to Galatians where he talks about the works of the flesh, which he says are obvious. I mean, you're, you're spiritually awake. If you're not spiritually asleep, then you ought to see these things. They ought to be clear to you. Well, what are they? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, this is darkness. And you as Christians cannot embrace it. You can't go down that pathway. You can't be conformed to the ways of the world. You have to be transformed. You have to put off these deeds of darkness. You can't conclude... That all this spiritual talk is nice, but in the real world, the way things really get done is the hard-nosed, tough-knuckled way of just abusing others. Put these aside, Paul says. Don't be conformed. And then finally, he pleads with us to stay armed. To realize you're in a battle. You're in a spiritual battle. You're not playing kids' games here. You're you're a soldier in a real war. And so he tells us in verse 12, not only to cast off the works of darkness, but to put on the armor of light. The word armor is Hopla, which is basically a word for instrument. That's why it was translated back in chapter 6, the instruments of righteousness or the instruments of unrighteousness. Translators probably use the word armor because that's uh, the kind of image Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he talks about putting on the breastplate of love and faith. But, but Paul's just saying it doesn't really matter, I, I guess, what the image is 
whether it's weapons or whether it's armor, the point is we need to put on spiritual attitudes, which as I said in First Thessalonians is faith and hope and love. Dress yourself with these things, he says. Those very things which, by the way, have echoed all the way through Romans 12 and 13. Don't give in. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds with these kinds of virtues. And in verse 14... It's not just the armor of light, but he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ-like character. Put on the kind of grace, the kind of love, the kind of truth, the kind of gentleness, the kind of faithfulness that Christ had. Put on the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Put him on in everything that he represents and then make no provision for the flesh as to its works. The word provision is really the word forethought. Pro-noia takes the word pro for beforehand and the word noose for mine. And literally it's talking about thinking about things ahead of time. Do not think about the deeds of the flesh. Do not fill your mind with those things. Make no provision for the flesh. Thinking about it, giving attention to it, letting your mind wander into it, dwelling on it. You don't realize you're just sowing the seeds of that kind of darkness when you are laying around or sitting around imagining the kind of hatefulness or the kind of sensuality or the kind of impurity that you are imagining, you're letting your mind be conformed to the ways of the world by simply thinking through its thoughts and patterns. You might say, well, I really don't have any intention of ever living that out. Well, you don't have the personal will to stand against it. When you have sown so many seeds of ungodly thought in your mind, hatred, backbiting, Sexual immorality, greed, all of those things. Make no provision. Don't let your mind think about it ahead of time. You need to recognize those sinful patterns of thought in your mind before they manifest themselves in behavior, before they manifest themselves in actions. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in your thoughts. Fill your mind with Christ. Read through His life. Read His gospel. Fill your mind with truth so that you won't give in to the ways of the world. So that you won't give in to the deeds of the flesh. We're not in this forever. The darkness will not win. This will not be the way that it all comes to a conclusion. It might seem like it is closing in around you, but you know better than that. So as Paul's already told us, don't be conformed to it. Don't return evil for evil. Don't be haughty. 
Don't be wise in your own eyes. Live peaceably with all people. Submit to governing authorities. Live peaceably within their systems. Demonstrate supernatural love. And so fulfill the law. All those admonitions Paul's been giving us because he knows that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That the night is far gone. That the day is about to dawn. So stay awake. Stay aware. Stay away from the deeds of darkness. And stay armed. Ready for battle. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. And let me just say for some of you, you're here today, you're hearing all this about darkness and you see it. You look around the brokenness in your own family, in your own life, in your own heart and your own mind. And you feel that alienation from God. You know the darkness is there. We're here to tell you God can deliver you. You may not want to believe it, but He can deliver you. He can forgive your sins. He can cleanse your heart. He can fill you with light and with life. If you will confess your sins, the Scripture says He's faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Father, we're grateful this morning for these precious promises. Thank You so much for the Word that encourages our heart in the midst of darkness. Lord, let us not grow weary in well-doing. Let us not be lulled to sleep. Help us to not be conformed to the ways of the world, but let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is the acceptable will of God, what is good and what is perfect. Lord, we know that Your ways are right. We know that they are true. We know that they are lovely and of good report. We want to think on these things. Dwell on these things. So help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to give no forethought No provision for the flesh. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.